are in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, it might help you to grab one of those in the pew rack in front of you. We're on page 1009. 1009. You can follow along. We just take a section of scripture and go line by line here. Hebrews 12. In case you haven't been with us for this study, I'll kind of catch you up real briefly to where we are. The author has laid before this church a heavenly calling. Come to Jesus and through him inherit eternal life. And in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, he he says it this way to the, the congregation there. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is what he has been calling this congregation who's hearing this, this uh, letter read to them. It's what he's calling them to. It's what he's been calling us to, is that we would run this race of faith pursuing Christ looking toward that grace that lays before us, longing to see the face of the Father, pressing in by faith to receive the eternal inheritance that has been promised for us and purchased by the blood of Jesus. But as we run along this course that the Lord has set before us, we face various trials. Some of us have been passed over for opportunities that we prayed for. It's discouraged us. Some of us gave in to that dark sin again that we, we thought we'd gotten past or we feel like we'll never be able to get past. Some of us went another weekend without a date and we're just despairing in the fact that we aren't married. We long to have a spouse and family. Others of us maybe have gone another week with a spouse that we feel distant from. Some of us this week have buried loved ones. Some of us have spent the night in the ER. Some of us have parents with terminal illnesses. Some of us have been betrayed by beloved friends. Others have faced persecution from neighbors and family. Some feel, even in a room like this, that we're unable to make friends and are lonely. Some of us have that inescapable cloud of depression that just doesn't seem to go away. All of that is just from some conversations that I've had with people this week. You see, this life is hard. And this race of following Christ is is not easy. But what this author is doing here in the book of Hebrews is he's calling his church and our church to keep running, to keep trusting, to keep looking to our Heavenly Father and trusting that He is using every trial and every pain, every bit of it to produce in us a holiness that is necessary for us to be able to inherit salvation. This author uses these, these pictures of Christ, these words of encouragement and these words of warning to woo us unto the Lord. And that's where we come this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Follow along with me. 
Therefore, in light of all of this, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for yourself so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This morning we'll be considering these few verses. And the big idea that we're going to talk about this morning is this, that we must strive together in faith for the peace and the purity that lead to inheriting eternal life. That we must strive together in faith faith for the peace and the purity that lead to inheriting eternal life. What we're going to see in this text is that there's, there's a word of encouragement in verses 12 and 13, and then there's a word of exhortation in verses 14 down through 17. And those two Uh, ideas will kind of serve as our our two points together this morning. So let's first hear his his word of encouragement for this this weary bunch that he has written to that I trust applies to us as well. Verse 12, listen again. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. As this author, as inspired by the Holy Spirit here, looks, looks out on his congregation. He sees that they are, they're tired. They're struggling. They're weary. His words portray their exhaustion. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, they are weary. But he serves here as, as a coach, as it were, who's, who's calling out to the runners to, don't quit. Don't, don't give up in this race of faith. The first thing he says is, therefore. He's connecting what, what he's about to tell us with what he has just told us. We looked at it a few weeks ago, that the trials that we face, all of the ones that I listed this morning and ten thousands more, are, are a part of the way that God is graciously disciplining us or instructing us in his love sometimes addressing particular sins in our life and sometimes just teaching us as a loving father and that he does it because he loves us. Look back at verse 6. The Lord disciplines those he loves. What that means is through the, the wounding of circumstances, through weeping, through the struggle, through the darkness, God is sovereignly using all of those things to refine us and conform us into the image of Jesus. It says in verse 10 that he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness he's making us like himself like his son verse 11 for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it and what the author is doing is saying in light of those things in light of what god is doing 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The word lift there, it means to, to strengthen or, or to, to, to lift up, to, 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 to restore something. He sees them struggling and he calls for them to, to not quit, but to endure in, in faith. He speaks here of drooping hands. Uh, the word means weak or neglected. Have you ever run and you've been so tired that you just can't hold your arms up? Have you ever seen somebody doing that at the end of a race? They're just hanging down by your side? He says, I look out and I see you and I know your souls are like that. But lift them. Be strengthened. He says, your weak knees, this word weak here, it's used five times in the New Testament. Four of them are used to describe someone who's paralyzed. The other is here. He says, I see that your your knees are feeble. I see that you're buckling under exhaustion and you're about to topple over. He says, lift, be strengthened. If you've walked with Jesus for very long, you know what he's talking about here. You know how weary and tiresome persecution and suffering and trials and betrayals and temptations. You become weary and discouraged. But he says, lift, strengthen, make straight paths for your feet, make no detours, no, no delays. It's going to be easy to want to get off this, this path that's been laid before you. It's narrow. Jesus said it would be narrow. He said it would be hard. It's going to be easy because you're going to be tempted to get off there. He says, no, keep straight paths toward the goal. And what is that goal? Well, he's laid it all the way through the book of Hebrews, but also here, verse 14, that you would see the Lord. Verse 15, that you would attain the grace of God. There's laid before us the hope of seeing Him and being with Him forever. He says make straight paths for that. And He's not just calling us to try harder here. There is effort, and we're going to see that this morning. But what He's doing here, with all this runner imagery, which again does cause us to strive, but what He's doing, He's tapping into what makes us run. He's getting after our our hearts here, and he's trying to stir our affections. He's cranking up our motivation. He's saying, run, and he's laying before us why we run. It's interesting, this text about drooping hands and weak knees. It comes from Isaiah 35. He's quoting an Old Testament text. Hear this. Isaiah 35, 1-4. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall be glad shall rejoice, and it shall blossom abundantly, and rejoice with joy and singing. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with recompense. He will come and save you. Isaiah 35 is a text that lays before the weary people of Israel and saying, Messiah is coming. 
He will reveal the glory of the Lord. He will establish his righteous rule. And he says, don't give up because joy is coming. Healing is at hand. Peace is promised. Life is given in abundance. He says, this is laid before you, so run. You see what he's doing? He's calling to our heart and our affections to look to what the Lord has promised. And that helps us in the midst of our sufferings. That we see them in perspective, in light of who God is and what He's promised and what He promises that He will do and that it's worth it to not give up. Listen to this promise from Romans 8.18. captures the same idea. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what helps Paul and what helps us in the midst of our struggles is that before us is a day of glory that is coming. It's worth more, it's more precious than silver or gold. It's worth more than any applause that this world could ever give you. It's worth more than any fleeting pleasure that you could ever go for. There is an inheritance laid before the people of God where we will get God. We'll see Him as He is, no longer by faith, but by sight. Hope will be needed no more because we will have Him. He's laying this before them and before us, and He's saying, this is why we do not grow weary or faint-hearted. And it's interesting, all the way through this text here, these words are all in the plural. It's because... We are to be a people as the church who do this together. We encourage each other. We exhort each other. We care for each other so that, did you notice there in verse 13? We do all this so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There's a medical term here about dislocation. He's, he's, he's looking out on the congregation, and he's saying some of you are being crippled by discouragement, by sin, by pressure, and you want to give up, you want to give in, you want to fall down, you want to quit. He says, but you can't. And brothers and sisters, you can't let them quit either. Have you ever dislocated something before? By God's grace, I have not yet, but I've, I've seen it happen during basketball games when someone was trying to guard me, and they couldn't, and I, no, I'm just kidding, (laughs) just kidding, those days are long gone, the older I get, the better I was, but um, seeing somebody dislocate their shoulder, it just comes out of socket, and they are not going to be like, I got this, I'm good, like, that's not what happens, they, this is a big dude, he was, a, he was a, I mean, and he just went down, he's like, "Ah, my arm, and he's holding it like this, You can't just go on when that kind of thing's going. He says, some among us are like that right now. It's it's just grace that they're even sitting upright. Like if they were honest, they would just, just right over. Because they've got no strength left. He says, because life is hard, and it's wearing them out, and they're crushed, and they want to quit. He says, look around. He says, don't let that happen. You need your soul to become 
helped because right now it's overcome with discouragement and suffering and trials. He says, don't, don't just leave them hanging there. You ever felt like that before? So you were just so done. You just felt like you couldn't take another step. On Friday, I don't know, I don't know exactly why, I got terribly discouraged. So I wrestle with this from time to time. I don't think I'm depressed, but from time to time, and some of us are, but for me, I don't think that's where I am. I think I have discouragement that comes on me in waves at times that just sometimes out of nowhere, it just boom. And I sat for probably, I don't know, 30 minutes on, on Friday in my office and just felt like I couldn't pray. I was looking at the Bible trying to study, and I was just like, I can't, I, I can't barely put two words together. I was just overwhelmed with just discouragement. So I, I knew I needed help. So I reached out to a few people and just said, I'm really discouraged right now. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just give you a window. So my wife writes me, she goes, are you okay? I was like, no. She goes, what's wrong? I was like, I don't want to talk about it. And she's like, well, tell me. I'll, I want to help you. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. I'll tell you later. She's like, I love you. I want to help you. you know, so she's, she's very persistent, which I'm grateful for. Um, and she, she sent me some scripture. And it was interesting because it was one of the scriptures that I had batted out of my mind because I didn't want to think about anything. And I read it. I read it out loud. And it was amazing how I felt like my arm went back into socket, as it were. And it doesn't always happen for me like that. But it was just God's mercy. I needed someone to give me a word from the Lord to help my soul because I was tired. And I had emailed a couple other brothers, and both of them emailed me back and gave me some words of encouragement and truth to help me see things clearly because I wasn't seeing things clearly. I needed that. This word for healed here, it's again a medical term that speaks about restoring and repairing spiritually, to have a heart adjusted and a mind cleared and a soul strengthened no matter, no matter what is facing us. And he says to the congregation, this word of encouragement, don't give up. Consider what lays before you. It is worth it. And he's aiming to, to restore weary hearts and weary souls. I'm going to say more about us doing this as a congregation in, in a few moments, but right now what we're going to do is we're going to move on to, to the second part, to this, this word of exhortation that he lays right alongside this word of encouragement strong word that calls us to engage now. To engage by faith. To engage and to strive in the midst of it. Look at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, 
for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. All through the book of Hebrews and all through the Bible, we see very clear that while we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that saving faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by a real, practical, observable faith that shows itself in love for God and love for others. Not in a perfect way, but in a way that it's, it's there. The Bible calls this fruit. And what he does here is he lays words of exhortation alongside all these reminders of what is at stake for them. Do you notice these two words of exhortation he gives here? It's strive in verse 14, and then see to it in verse 15. He says, I want you to strive for something, and I want you to see to it that something. Because this, what we're going to talk about here, is how we see the Lord. This is how we obtain the grace of God. This is how we will inherit the blessings of eternal life. It's not by being overwhelmed by the circumstances and saying, you know what, I quit, I'm done with this Jesus thing, and I'm checking out, and I'm going to go back to my old life. Or I'm going to go to some other God or some other place to find refuge, and I'm going to stay there, and I'm going to forsake Jesus. He says, that does not lead to life. But rather, verse 14, strive. It's a strong word here. It means to make every effort to pursue, to press toward a goal with urgency and intensity. And what are we to strive for? Strive for peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one sees the Lord. Peace and holiness are gifts that God gives to his people through conversion. So when when, when God in his mercy awakens us to the fact that we are sinners against the God who made us, we are awakened to the fact that we should repent, we should turn from our sin and trust in Christ. That's what conversion is. We turn from our sin and we believe in Jesus. When that happens, God forgives us of our sins and we are reconciled to him. Peace is given between us and God. And we are set apart as his, justified, declared to be righteous which is holiness. We're set apart. These are positional realities that are true for Christians. But peace and holiness are also practical realities that God is producing in us. Verse 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And what the author is doing here is he's saying, since God is at work in you to produce peace and holiness, yes, in a positional sense, but also in a very practical sense, strive for peace and holiness. Because they don't just happen. Strive for peace. Let's think about this first. Strive for peace with everyone. So again, this peace is not the objective peace that we have with God or the subjective peace that we feel within, but this is the practical peace that we have with other people. God calls his people to not just affirm that peace is a good idea, 
to not just sign a church covenant that says, yes, we'll pursue peace, but to pursue peace. And who does it say that we're to pursue peace with here? Everyone or all. You see, in the, in the original language, everyone means everyone. That's what it means. Can't parse yourself out of this one. That means we're to pursue peace with those who are easy to love. You can think of those people. Man, they're just, they're easy to love. And then you pursue peace with those who are difficult to love. No names, but you know what I'm talking about. People who are difficult to love. And and again, notice the assumption here. That peace, that love, that unity, it, it must be cultivated. It must be pursued. We must strive for it, pray for it, fight for it. Ephesians 4 says it this way. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility, which is needed for this. Gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. That means put up with one another. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, be eager for this unity, for this peace. Strive for it. Now, why do you think he gives this command here? Because if you aren't at peace with someone, you are highly unlikely to be eager to help them follow Jesus. If you've got discord with someone, if you dislike someone, or someone's offended you, or someone has wronged you, or you're jealous of someone, or envious of someone, or put off by someone, you, when they walk in the room, your most natural disposition is not going to be like, I need to go up and encourage them. It's going to be like, Mm-mm, not today. They did this to me, I'm going to do that. I'm a, No, they should come to me. They did me wrong. But notice here, the commandment is given for you to be on the offensive. Not offensive, like offending, but offensive, like pursuing. The responsibility falls on you to pursue peace with with others. And to verse 15, same idea. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The word there in verse 15 for uh, see to it. It's the word that means to oversee or to take care of. It's the same word used in 1 Peter 5 of elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. It's the same word. So in, so in one very real sense, this is how we are to think of the way as we're running this journey together and we, we're helping one another in the midst of the weariness We are to think of ourselves as shepherding each other's souls. Yes, this is a responsibility of the elders. But the elders are equipping the saints for the work of the service. What that means is, scripturally, it's your job to help other people's souls. It's your responsibility to watch over them with care and with concern. Now, this may be a revolutionary idea to you, but but we need to think about this for just a moment. Jesus saves. He alone is the Savior. 100% true. 
one of the means that Jesus, the Savior, uses to help his people make it home is one another. What that means is that it is partially your responsibility to ensure that your brothers and sisters in Christ make it home. Make it home to heaven. That's what I mean when I use that that term sometimes, that we help each other to heaven. Jesus is the Savior. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is how we are saved. But there is a very real tension that's laid right next to it that says, and you must strive for holiness and pursue peace, and without which no one sees the Lord. And one of the ways that we do this practically is that you are responsible for one another. Have you ever thought of the Christian life in that way? Think about it. Hear hear this from Hebrews. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So take care of you all unless there be one of you. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the ways that I am kept from being in despair or discouragement or ensnarement in sin is by somebody speaking truth to me, exhorting me every day as long as it's called today so that I may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You speaking truth into my life, you speaking truth into one another's lives, you being humble enough to allow someone to speak truth into your life, God, that is one of his means to help you inherit the salvation that is laid up before you. Hear this from Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see what he does? He does the same thing here that he did here in Hebrews 12. He says there's a day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, look at it. Jesus is coming soon. And between now and then, consider how to stir up one another. Not to things that are anti-peace, but to love and good works. Help each other grow. Help each other trust Christ. Help each other fight sin. Help each other hear truth and walk in truth. What that means is that we are not to be an individualistic community where we're content to show up on Sundays or listen live online or have your name on a membership roll or to see ourselves as not really needing to give or receive from others, but rather we're to be a a people who are committed to love one another and be loved by one another. It also means that we're not a consumeristic community where we're we're content to come and get a spiritual boost from the music or from a sermon or whatever it is, but rather we are to be a committed people who help each other follow Jesus. It also means that we're not to be a passive community where there's no effort exerted or we just assume that the elders are going to do it, but rather we each... grab the responsibility that is commanded to us 
to be committed and connected and engaging and striving in community together. One in which we lock arms and run together, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God gives. That we look to him knowing, hear this from Philippians 2, my beloved, work out your own salvation. So don't work for your salvation, Jesus did that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What that means is that Delray Baptist Church, God is working in us to will and to work to help each other pursue Jesus all the way home. That no matter what's coming at us and and coming upon us or is stirred up within us, that we are committed to helping each other. That's what a church is. That's what he lays before us here. One of Satan's most sinister weapons is to tempt Christians to become so irritated or easily offended or resentful or envious or apathetic or unforgiving or bitter or divisive or gossiping that we're not going to love one another. That we're not going to be intentional to care for one another. But that we are going to either ignore or actively go against and be pawns of Satan. That's why we're told in Galatians for Christians not to consume one another. You ever been in a church where people consume one another? You ever been the one who's been a part of that? He says here, not so among us. Not so among us. Hear this from Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all people. Did you hear that? If possible, so yes, maybe it's not possible, but, but don't just check that off too quickly. As far as it depends on who? On you, on me. Our own responsibility, live at peace with all people. It says this is to mark the Christian. So let me give you one more thing on this. This is Jesus talking during the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. When Jesus is doing this, he's about two miles away from where this place is. And they've got no Uber, they've got no bikes, they've got, they're walking there or riding something, okay? It's a long, so if you've walked two miles to go to the temple, and there, bring your offering, and while you're offering it up, the Lord brings to mind someone that you're not at peace with, and you have not attempted to be at peace with that person. He says, put down your gift, because there's something he wants more than your religious duty. He wants you to go reconcile. He says, go make it right, and then come back, and then you can worship. The implication here is you cannot worship if you've got division in your heart between you and somebody else, and there's not attempts to try and resolve that. See, because over time, what that does, it becomes a cancer that makes you cold toward others. And every sermon that you hear, you're like, I hope they hear this. 
and you just, it, there's this bitterness that grows in your heart toward other people. And that will choke out your soul. So I would ask you, Delray Baptist Church, are you at peace with each other? Do you need to pursue peace with someone? Now, right there, some of y'all think, well, they need to pursue me. No, the Bible says right here, I'll start over. I will. <laughs> he says it's on you. Now, if, if there's a particular situation that's maybe dangerous or something like that, and you want to talk through that, the elders will help you think through this. You don't need to do this on your own. We're a community. We want to help think through this together. But if you know what I'm talking about right now, and there's someone you've got to pursue. And I would even ask not just that, but how are you intentionally planning to be at peace with others? This is a proactive commandment here. So I would encourage you, Delray Baptist Church, let us avoid anything that cools your love for one another. Pray for each other. Use the membership directory and pray. Page, Take a page a day and pray for people by name. Pray for them things that you read in your quiet time or pray for them things that you'd want someone to be praying for you. Text each other if it's appropriate. Email each other. Have meals together. Confess your sins to one another. Repent together. Be at peace with each other. Pursue it. And then he tells us here to strive for holiness. So pursue peace with everyone, but also to, to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So hear this. There is a practical, personal, active holiness in the lives of God's people. Not saying that we're saved by works here. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But saving faith shows itself in holiness, in Christ-likeness. So if holiness is a new word to you, it simply means to be set apart. To be holy means to be set apart. So holiness is set-apartness. We are united, we are set apart from sin, and we are set apart to Jesus. Through conversion, through salvation, we are united with Jesus through faith by the Holy Spirit. And the life of Christ is now produced in us practically. There is fruit that is to come in our lives that we are to strive to cultivate. We're to strive to cultivate this in our lives. Holiness is not an elective in the Christian life. Practical holiness, it's required. Just hear these other commands. Uh, the Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter 1, As he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The Apostle John, 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, I'm a Christian, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If you say you love God, but make no effort to obey him, he says, actually, you're deceiving yourself. The Apostle Paul, again, in Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now, up to this point, many of us are thinking, well, I'm maybe okay. Enmity, that's hatred, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Practical holiness, it's part of what it means to be a Christian. So any of this nonsense that you just come to Jesus and that there's no requirement after that, it's just not in the Bible at all. Walking an aisle, praying a prayer, getting baptized, joining a church, those can all be wonderful things. If they're born out of faith, and the way you know they're born out of faith is there will continue to be faith exerted toward holiness. Christians are people who have been born again. And this is not just an external thing. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we're talking about holiness and purity that's from the heart. Not just clean up outside, but we're talking about from the heart. So Christians are a people who have been born again, who are characterized by running toward God, not away from God. Who desire to obey him, not offend him. Who grow in hatred for sin, not love of sin. They are not perfect people, but they trust in the one who was perfect on their behalf. And they strive often very slowly. And we stumble. And when we stumble, it grieves us. So the mark of the Christian is that when we sin, what happened to Peter when he denied the Lord three times? And you remember what it says in Luke? It says, and the Lord looked at Peter. And Peter saw the Lord looking at him, and he went out and he wept bitterly. Sin breaks the heart of a Christian because we've offended our Lord. Verse 15, he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This root of bitterness is very interesting. At first read, I just assumed he was talking about bitterness between one another, as related to the peace that he had talked about earlier. That was my natural assumption. I think that's a byproduct, potentially, but I think he's talking about something else. This this root of bitterness is actually a quotation from Deuteronomy 29. Listen to this. This is God speaking to Israel, Deuteronomy 29, 18. Beware lest there be any among you, a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to... Go and serve the gods of the nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. This this root of bitterness here is talking about a heart that is going after idols. You see, idolatry produces a fruit of bitterness in us. Not a fruit that pleases God, but there's a fruit of bitterness in us toward God. And and, and idolatry flows from and it flows to a dissatisfaction with God. Think about it in your lives. There have been times when you've been unpleased with the Lord, haven't there? And you've been tempted to think or given in to the temptation to think, he's failed me. He's not given me what I want. And we might not say it that way, because that sounds really self-centered. But if we're honest, that's it. He's overlooked me. 
so I, and it's not always cognate like this, but it's, so I'm going to look elsewhere. Even if it's just for a moment, I'm going to step away from what he has said pleases him, and I'm going to find something that pleases me. Whether it be Baal, like Israel, or Buddha, or whatever, or whether it be something that might be quite different from what we would normally think of as idolatry. Listen to this from Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, idolatry is anything that we're looking to to find satisfaction apart from God. Something that's going to applaud for us and serve us rather than our hearts being set upon pleasing and praising him. And I think it's very important for us to notice because it's both in the Colossian text and here in this Hebrews text, the connection between idolatry and immorality. Do you notice in verses uh, 15 and 16 here? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. You see, dissatisfaction with God will always seek fulfillment elsewhere. Dissatisfaction with God and God's timing and God's plan and God's provision for you will always show itself somewhere else. So, for those of you this morning who are struggling in pornography, who are struggling with adulterous either actions or thoughts or desires, for those of you who are not married but who are not, but who are feeling tempted to to just go ahead and give in with somebody that you meet online or that you meet at work or some friend or whatever it may be, I want you to know that the root of it is a dissatisfaction with God. It's not, because if you had the perfect spouse, if you finally got married, if you had the whatever and you fill it in the blank, that is never going to satisfy you because it's not created to be satisfactory ultimately. God is the one who satisfies. He gives good gifts so that we can be thankful and enjoy them and say thank you because you're enough. I would say very often this shows itself in sexual immorality because there's something intimate there that that touches the, the deepest part of who we are. Affirmation, acceptance. He says, be careful that that in your midst that this root of bitterness bitter to your own soul when you eat it and bitter to the Lord not spring up and defile many and then he gives us finally this example to avoid here verse 16 see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
As John read this morning, Esau is Jacob's brother. In the book of Genesis, he's the grandson of Abraham, to whom had been given the promises. And throughout his life, Esau consistently showed little concern for God's promises, but rather he always wanted the temporal pleasures. And in that Genesis 25 passage that we heard, what we saw there was that he didn't care about what God had promised to those of Abraham's line. He didn't care about the promises. He didn't care about the land that was coming. He didn't care about the Messiah who was going to usher in the great age. He didn't care about that. He only cared about immediate gratification. And, and don't worry about the church. I, I would say in our age of immediate gratification, we should be very aware of this. I mean, we live in an age that says, you can't wait, get it now. He only cared about immediate gratification, and he traded the promised inheritance, and I don't know if you're writing your Bible, wherever you're taking notes, you need to make a note of, for a single meal. For a single meal. Fleeting fulfillment at the cost of eternal fulfillment. He just traded it in. He traded in the whole thing because he wanted some satisfaction right then. He couldn't wait. And you remember there in that story later on in Genesis 27 where Esau comes and he finds out that Jacob got the blessing. And you remember what Esau started doing? He started crying and weeping. But why did he weep? He wanted the inheritance. He wanted the blessing. So when you read this here in verse 7, notice here, he says, Though he sought it with tears, I think what he was seeking, uh, seeking with tears was not the repentance, but rather the inheritance. That lines up with everything in Hebrews, where he's talking about the inheritance is laid before you. Pursue that. It lines up with the Genesis text, where he wanted the inheritance. Esau was upset because he lost out on a blessing but he didn't care that he offended the blesser. His weeping had nothing to do with God. He hated the consequences of his sin, but he cared very little, if at all, for the one, against, the one he had sinned against. I'll say that again. He hated the consequences of his sin, but he cared very little about the one against whom he had sinned. This, by the way, friends, is something... You have, to keep a te- you have to keep a watch over in your soul and in your discipling of one another. That there is a mourning over sin that does not lead to life. And there is a mourning over sin that does lead to life. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What that means is that just because you're crying about sin does not mean that you love God. It could just be the very fact that you've now ruined your life. And you hate the consequences of sin. Now, people don't see you in the same way, or you missed out on this thing, or you lost a job, or whatever it may be, or you just don't feel good, and you just hate the fact of the consequences of sin rather than the fact that you sin against God. This is a good thing for us always to be praying about, because It's easy to look at Esau there and forget that there is Esau within all of us. 
that is always tempted to trade the eternal inheritance that is laid before us for fleeting pleasures. And some of you are doing that right now. Some of you are trading the eternal inheritance for fleeting pleasures. And this word is intended to say, stop. Stop and consider Esau. Consider the promises that are laid here. Seeing the Lord, obtaining the grace of God, inheriting the blessing of eternal life. And throughout Hebrews, the whole antidote has been, look to Jesus. Because Jesus laid down his life, not for the joy of the moment, but for the joy that was laid before him. The Father, the glory, and bringing us there with him. And we're here called to think in the same way. Not to trade our, our internal inheritance for a single meal. And I tell you what, all those things that I listed at the beginning, when those things are pressing on you, that's when I think often we are so tempted to find something to give us relief, even if it's not God. Guard your hearts, brothers and sisters. Do not trade your internal inheritance for a single meal. The fleeting filling of our flesh the passing serving of sin, but rather aim for the everlasting one. In conclusion, I just want to read before us this hope that is laid before us of another meal in another land, one that is not fleeting, like the one that Esau sold everything for, not like the ones that we are tempted with every day, but one that will never fade away. This is from Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made a city, a heap, and a fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. So the place of the oppressor has been put down, ISIS is cut down, it's over. Therefore strong peoples will glorify you, cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter for the storm, and a shade from the heat. Right now, by faith, we press into that shelter. Hear this. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Boko Haram sings no more. And then he says this. On this mountain, Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Brothers and sisters, do not cash in that day for the fleeting pleasures of sin on this day. But help each other 
day by day, as long as it's called today, until the day that is drawing near appears and we see the Lord Jesus. We're almost home. We're almost home. Don't give up. Don't let one another give up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises that are laid before us, promises that are good and true. And Father, as we now prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we pray that as we we look at this table that we will see a foreshadowing and that we will use it as a time to pause and to ponder about the meal that is laid before us through blood-bought promises. God, help us to partake and remember and to press on in faith. And God, might you help us as we remember Jesus and consider him to war against the temptation to throw it all away for a single meal. Oh, Lord, thank you that you are a God who gives grace and forgiveness and that you help your people in our struggles and our temptations. But let it not be said about any of us that we, that we forsook Jesus and went back to the world and back to idols ultimately. But give us grace to press on until we need faith no more. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In his name, amen.